Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And we are Picture the Scene Podcasts. We are a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of a crime. Each week, we delve into the murky world of lesser known crimes from the UK and Ireland, and occasionally, we venture into renowned cases from around the globe. If you like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer, subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform of choice, and if you have the capability, give us a rating and review as well. It really means the world to us. If you like us that much that you want to support us, you can do so for less than the price of a cup of tea or coffee on Patreon, with our lowest tier starting at £1 per month. We release bonus content every month. The links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes or visit patreon.com or slash scenepod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com or slash s-c-e-n-e-p-o-d. We do, where possible, now release our episode a week early for our Patreon supporters, so you don't have to launch a multi-billion dollar telescope into space to experience an <laughs> event that happens at a different time. <laughs> All you need to do is support us on Patreon. As with any true crime podcast, listening discretion is always advised. Today is definitely no exception, as I will be giving, at one point, descriptions of a violent attack. Oh, wow. Always so pleasant to hear that on a Friday morning, isn't it? So it early. Is. Yes. How are you doing now, Rachel? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, I th- I feel like uh, this heat wave is really unfortunate, um, given the, how far along I am in my pregnancy. And just to add salt to the wound, the last time it was this hot in September was the last time I was pregnant <laughs> with, with Georgia. So I feel like, um, obviously, my pregnancy coincides with these crazy September heat waves in 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 the UK. It's um, do you know what I find odd? Like every time I agree with Nikki that I'm going to cut the grass, <laughs> it throws it down, it chucks it down. And yesterday I, I said to Nikki, "I'll do the grass on Thursday," and it chucked it down yesterday. Oh wow! It's been boiling all week. Chucked it down yesterday. It looks like it was it quite be refreshing. Da- yeah. It was actually, and it, it looks like it's going to be nice again tonight. So I, I guess I'll probably have to cut the grass later, but that's not him. <laughs> She's just going to stop asking you to tell her when you're going to cut the grass and just expect mm. it cut. Yes, I promise I do it before the weekend. So I have to do it today. And how are you? Work. I'm good, thank you, Rachel. Yeah, sparkling. Sparkling, yeah. Yes. Good. Are you ready for some true crime now? I really am. Yeah, I feel like uh, we. Got back into it, didn't we? For uh, after our after my little holiday, and uh, I've been missing it. We only recorded like a few days ago, but yeah, can't wait for today. Great. So, if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like you to relax, close your eyes, and picture the scene. Today, I'd like to take us back to the fifth of November, two thousand and sixteen, and on this day, in the winter of two thousand and sixteen. We're in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Belfast is both the largest and capital city of Northern Ireland, with its metropolitan area being home to around 700,000 people. Wow. So, so the location where Belfast is has been home to people for around 5,000 years in one form or another. It's a wonder- Titanic, didn't yes. they? Well, yeah, exactly. It's a wonderful city, Rachel. Yeah. Both my wife. I do. Both my wife and... I love to go there. And like you said, it's probably mainly known these days for being where the Titanic was built. 
and it has a great museum dedicated to that so i recommend it and you know what it really does like yeah. i i'm not a huge fan of museums but i remember dragging my friend around that museum twice because there was just so much uh to do um so yeah and what an impressive building as well yes yeah exactly. listeners go to belfast you won't regret it yes up until the good friday agreement in 1998 it was no more so for being a focal point of the troubles we saw over 3,700 people die on all sides. We were around 1,600 of those dying in Belfast. And in the 1970s and 80s, it was regarded as one of the world's most dangerous cities, with the Europa Hotel in Belfast being labelled the world's most bombed hotel. And because it experienced 36 separate bomb attacks in its existence. OMG, I'm surprised it was still standing. Yeah, I know. It's, it's hot, isn't it? And on, on this day in November, we're going to Falls Road, and in particular, Divis Tower. Now, Divis Tower is a tower block of flats built in 1966, and it itself was a hotbed during the Troubles. But these days, it houses some of the less fortunate within Belfast. The 5th of November was not that bad a day, considering the time of the year for the weather with it being around 60 degrees Celsius or 43 degrees Fahrenheit, with a 16 kilometre an hour southeasterly wind, and there was no rain. Now, the weather wouldn't have mattered that much to James or Jim Hughes, or, Se- or Seamus, by the way, as it was known to Hang some on. people. Okay, just wait. So James or Jim, they're the same person, right? Yes. Never quite understood why the abbreviation of James is Jim. But then you just threw into the mix, as I interrupted, he was known as Seamus as well. It's because Seamus, Seamus is the Irish name for James. No way. Yeah, so that's why wow. you hear Seamus, it's Irish for James, yeah. Okay, cool. That's if why I was having a boy, Seamus would be right up there. It's such yeah. a cool name. It is, yeah. That's why, obviously, um, it's Belfast, so some people would call him Seamus. Okay. So, yeah, so, yeah makes sense. his name was James. Most people called him Jim, but some people called him Seamus. Now, I'm going to stick with Jim because he preferred that himself. But when I have to use Seamus, you know who I'm talking about, him. Now, okay, Jim, I mean, it is very early on a Friday morning, but I think I've got you. Yeah, now Jim lived in flats 14D of Divis Tower. He was 62 and he wasn't employed at the time. Jim was well read, he was quiet. He was thoughtful and he was peaceful. Mm. Having a number of years earlier committed himself to the Buddhist philosophy of peace, he was known for helping out those less fortunate than himself with money when he could, but also just by being a friend. What a man? Yeah, or offering food or shelter or whatever else was needed at the time. Yeah, it it was actually. I know we see this quite often, but he seemed he was quite, quite a good man. When he did used to be in employment, he was a psychiatric nurse. So even in his professional life, he chose a profession to help people. Yeah. And now he wasn't in a relationship, but he was close to his family, having at least one brother, two sisters, and one niece. Now, Jim tried to be friendly with everyone, as you'd imagine. He can't be a nice person and and go around hating people. And he personally had no enemies, and no one disliked him either. 
one of the people he had befriended when he needed help and he basically had become friends with, with the both of them actually now considering each other best friends, was James Divine. Now, James, wow. yeah, James was 42 at the time and he was also living in Davis Tower. He was a neighbor of Jim's. And so that made it a good thing because they could spend time with each other often without any logistical problems. Now, Jim's good nature shone through in as much as he would often speak to James's mum on the telephone, giving her updates on James, and he would even send her gifts. He sent her two or three different scarves that she loved, and he even sent her a birthday card with cash in it for her birthday. Hang on. Uh, so Jim sent James's mum birthday gifts and cards. Yes. Now, it shows what type of person he was, because not many people would do that to someone they'd never met in person. Especially he fancied her. Like, he was no. 20 years older than his pal. No, he was just being kind. And Well, and, was he? Oh. And, and especially you don't do that when you're not working, so you don't have lots of disposable income. Yeah, no, 100%, yeah. He sounds like a really nice guy, and I guess I was just trying to make light of the situation about his fancying his best mate's mum. He did, sorry, I skipped over it, but yeah, I sorry, a bit early. I bet, I bet his mum was like flattered and also buzzing that um, his her son had met such a nice guy that was so kind as well. Yeah, because that's what you want for your children, isn't it? You want them to make good friends and be in good company. Yeah, absolutely. So James would often speak about Jim, or Seamus as he called him, which is why I introduced Seamus. James would call Jim Seamus. James's sister. I'm sorry, I'm laughing because he's a James too. Yeah, so no. it, it makes a lot more sense to introduce him as Seamus now because we've got another James. Yes. Now, James's sister would say that he had on several times in the past described Jim as his good friend. He would actually call him Wild Good and he would outline that Jim would often cook for him and look after him. Wild good. Yeah, that's was his description. I guess that means really good. So the, I'm assuming so. The reason Jim would update James's mum about James, and probably why he'd look after him so much, because even though James was 42, so you think a 42 year old man doesn't need looking after like that, because for the last 10 years since 2006, James had been living with a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia with a tendency towards violence. Now, it was a... Yes, oh, sorry. It was a condition that was made worse when he drank or took drugs, something he would do quite often. Oh, shit. Yes, when he was young, his troubled life began as he was taken to care with his sister. Now, his sister would return quite quickly to the family home, but he would stay in care for several years. Despite this, he actually always remained close to his mum, and even though he was diagnosed in 2006 with paranoid schizophrenia, he had suffered from poor emotion and mental health since he was a child. Now, he had worked sporadically, but he'd never been able to hold down a job, probably quite understandably, for any lengthy period of time. And James was also no stranger to breaking the law, which started in 1992. But in the 24 years since his first conviction in 1992, he had racked up 56 separate convictions, with the majority of them being public disorder type offences and assaults on police officers. And he had spent 
short-term prison sentences several times. Now, in 2002, some four years prior to prior to the date that we're talking about now, his offending escalated, and he was convicted of two offences of grievous bodily harm with intent. He was staying in a hostel at the time, and he had stabbed two people who were also staying at the hostel while he was drunk, and he was having his first psychotic episode. Do you know, obviously, just not to cast any shade on James, because he's living with a very serious mental health condition, but this makes Jim or Seamus even more lovable, doesn't it? Because I'm sure that James was quite open about his past and what you're telling us now about attacking people at hostels and you know, Jim or Seamus still took him in and under his wing and looked after him, yeah. despite that. And he would have been fully aware because he used to be yeah. a psychiatric nurse, so he would be used oh, to this, course. wouldn't he? Yeah, so it, no. Yeah. So it's not like he was naive and thought, I just need to help this guy. He would have known and would have known all the um Yeah, issues. what he was dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, when he was released from, from prison from stabbing those two people, he would unfortunately continue to offend, mainly with assaults on the police. He seems he really didn't like the police. No. As well as his prison stays, he was also subject to periods of supervision. In 1996, in 1997, in 2002, in 2005, and in 2010. The 2010 offence was due to him carrying an offensive weapon, notably a nine-inch kitchen knife. In September of 2015, so just over a year before the day in question, James was sentenced to a two-year probation order for offences of criminal damage, attempting to inflict grievous bodily harm, assault occasioning actual bodily harm, and assault on a police officer. The actual offences took place in 2013, though, and they involved him attacking a resident of Divis Tower, where he lived, and where Jim lived. At the time in 2013, he had managed to gain access to the victim's flat and attacked him in bed with his fists. So he was still actually under a probation order in 2016 on the 5th of November, on the day that we're going to. Now, on that day, it was the evening, and even though Jim had a lock on his door locked, he forced himself, James that is, into Jim's flat and he proceeded to attack him. Now, he wasn't sure where he got the knives from. Either he had them with him or he got them from Jim's kitchen, but he would proceed to attack Jim with two kitchen knives, both having seven-inch blades, and he would stab him 33 times in total, with the majority of the stab wounds to Jim's neck, chest, back and abdomen. Jim had obviously put up a fight, as knife wounds to his arm would be detected, along with a cut to his hand, where he had clearly at some point grabbed the blade of the knife, assumed to try and stop James. Ultimately, though, he wouldn't be able to resist the attack, and he would die quite quickly of his injuries, with several of them being enough in themselves, individually, to cause a quick death including stab wounds to the jugular vein area of his neck. Oh, gosh. So what happened next, no one really knows. But at 8am the next morning, James would call his mum, who lived some distance away, 
and tell her that he had blood all over his coat. When she asked why, he would say that he stabbed the boy to death. Again, she asked why, and he made an allegation against Jim. Now, one that was not true, so I don't think it's worth repeating, and I'm not going to because it just okay. puts James Jim's um, name into disrepute. Now, James's mum knew the pair were really good friends, so immediately thought went what he was accusing Jim of doing was not coming from him directly, but rather from the voices James would hear that were telling him things. Now, voices he had heard before uh, during the attack I mentioned a moment ago in 2013. So do you remember that attack where he stabbed two people? That was, um, no, not the two people, sorry, where he had broken into someone's flat and attacked him? Yeah. yeah. So that happened the same thing. He heard voices, and so he went to attack. And that time, had he tried to make any accusations about why he'd attacked? I don't know, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, I just wondering whether that was that was a pattern that would almost in his head um uh corroborate like the reasons behind the attack. But it, you know, yeah. It could be, yeah. I I mean they knew it was accepted that it was during a psychotic episode, so you'd assume probably, but it was never actually um disclosed if it was or not. Oh, okay. So, so she told him, quite obviously that he had to immediately give himself up to the police. Yeah. So they ended the call with him saying that he would. She waited an hour or so, hoping he had given himself up, but she was not convinced, so she called him back. Now, she said that he sounded very drunk, and he asked her if he could come up to Ballymoney, where she lived, which was almost 50 miles away. So at around 10 a.m. that morning, so two hours after the first phone call, or an hour after the second phone call, mm. he was seen by people he knew leaving Divis Tower, and they described his eyes bulging and him obviously being under the influence of some sort of drug. Okay. So he used the bus and train, and he would arrive at his sister's home at 6.30pm that evening while mm. she was just finishing up preparing an evening meal for her family and her mum, because she was a, his sister was a single mum with four kids. And his mum was out at his sister's house that evening, which is why he went there. So James, he entered the house and he sat down on the sofa and he pulled out what was found to be later to be £6,080 out of his pocket. And his sister, he asked his sister to take it and split it up with the family as it was his savings, but he wouldn't need it where he was going. So they sat down to eat dinner. And he said to them that he'd stabbed Seamus. If you remember, that's what he called Jim. And he said that he just he said that he just stabbed him and stabbed him and that he couldn't stop stabbing him. He said Just over she, the dinner table. Yeah. He said oh, he said that Seamus was begging for his life, but he could just he could just not stop himself. He told them that he had no remorse. And he again repeated the allegation that he had made against Jim on the telephone to his mum. So he told his sister to phone the police on him. But she already had done that as soon as he entered the house. Oh, wow. Uh, because obviously I mean, uh, his mum had talked to his sister already. I was going to say as well, like, when he said, oh, I don't need this money where I'm going, 
you'd be thinking about your brother's welfare at that point. Even if his sister had been yeah. absolutely none the wiser of what he'd done, you'd want some help potentially in having him like assessed, you know, for his yeah. like um capability. Um, because he's saying, Oh, I don't need money where I'm going. To me, that would indicate that he's just talking about ending his life. Yeah. Um, or, or obviously yeah, obviously now you're suggesting it's prison, but my first thought was that. And uh, so, yeah, yeah I, I absolutely would have alerted like ambulance or some sort of authority. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, well, she, she actually said that the reason she phoned the police as soon as she, he turned up at her house because she was actually in fear for her children's lives. Oh, gosh. Imagine doing she, that to your own brother. Yeah, but, you know, your children come first, don't they? Oh, no, 100%. I agree, but it must have still been quite distressing for her. Yeah, it was. I, I read a few interviews and it, it did seem distressing. Now, at 7.30pm, acting on a telephone call, police actually arrived at Jim's flat, 14D Divers Tower, and found him dead. They found him sat in a computer chair in the kitchen, with his head leaning against a wall, with the injuries that I described a moment ago. So at 8 p.m., the police arrived at Margaret's house. Remember, that's James's sister. Wow. And and they proceeded to start coordinating. So it makes sense. They first went to see if it was true. Yeah. And then they went to arrest him. Usually you hear of it happening in, like, tandem, though, don't you? Yeah. I guess because it's so far away. Yeah. They have to get one police force to do one and the other to do that. So, yeah. At 8 p.m., they arrived at her house and they started to cordon the area off, making it safe from the public because they didn't know what sort of mental state he was in. No. And at 8.30 p.m., James told his mum and his sister he was going to the shop. And at 8.35, he left his sister's home, only to be confronted by armed police waiting for him. And as soon as he saw the police, and they obviously commanded him, he dropped to his knees and he allowed himself to be arrested without a struggle, which okay. for him was quite unusual because he didn't like the police. And most of the assaults on the police came from when he, they tried to arrest him in the past. Yeah. Mm. So he would, however, once arrested, revert back to the norm and start verbally abusing the police whenever he could. When he was being cautioned, he said he understood and as the evidence kit was being put on him, you know, the big white clothing that they make you go in. Yeah. Um, when they take your clothes, he said, and I quote, I murdered him. I killed a man. I have to own up to it. And I killed him because I had to. He told the police while all this was happening that it was a friend of his. And he would ask them where they found a body and that he would tell them that he had stabbed him over and over. So when he was at the police station and having his hand swapped for DNA or other evidence, he actually told the police to do a good job on one of them because that's the one he used to stab him with. Mm-hmm. He also, while this was happening, said that he went back to the flat twice after he had killed him, but he wasn't showing any signs of life, so he was certain he was dead. Imagine, like, it's, I mean, it's just difficult to imagine, isn't it? Like your uh, conflict in your own head 
of um of what you've done because he obviously believed the accusations that he was making i appreciate you're not going to disclose that because it brings jim's um reputation to dis disrepute but just the conflict that james had uh, encountered there with himself and then you know probably going to check on the body to make sure that he hadn't like dreamt it up yeah because we don't know what happened at night time do we because we no. we only have like the the more 8 a.m when he spoke to his mum so yeah god knows what he was doing overnight like. I wonder, did were there any reports about why he'd turned to drink all of a sudden because he'd been drinking solidly from obviously the pre-murder right through to calling his mom it Is was com- that- commonplace for him he'd already he'd had a lifetime history of issues with alcohol and drugs oh yeah no i remember you saying that but he just carried on drinking but without harming jim or seamus for some time and then one day just harmed him yeah yeah, no, sorry, yeah, oh, no. Okay. Well, it was, it, the assumption was that he had suffered a, because he was a violent uh, schizophrenic, so he had just suffered a psychotic break. That's the assumption was. Okay, yeah, sorry. So, so he would be interviewed on both the 7th and 8th of November. Now, by this time, he had a solicitor. So rather than being as open as he had been, he gave a prepared statement via solicitor stating that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and that his memory from the night before the attack, Friday the 4th up until his arrest, was not great. His statement would say that he had been drinking on a Friday and he had collected his medication as normal. He said that he had no memory of where he slept on a Friday or the Saturday night and that the only memory he had was being in his home drinking with his friends from the Divis Tower block. He said that on a Sunday... He had gone to Jim's home and found him dead in the morning. He said that he couldn't remember the killing or admitting the crime to either his mum or his sister. So this obviously sounds like it was a solicitor telling him, like, behave, don't be saying stuff like this. Um, because he'd been quite open about it, open to his solicitor. Mm. He said that he couldn't remember what he had said to the police due to the drinking while he was on his medication. He said that he didn't think he had taken illegal drugs, but he couldn't remember. He would go on to say that he liked Seamus, that he was one of his best friends and it helped him a lot. He said that Seamus was a gentleman and that he had no reason to attack or murder him. So by this point, he stopped the accusations against him. Um, yeah, he would no comment most questions. Occasionally, he went against his sister's advice and would say that he did not know if he killed Seamus. But he thinks that he did do it. That's that's why the police keep on asking the questions, isn't it? Because yeah. they're hoping that the accused gets so wound up that they just blurt something out, like, for God's yeah. sakes, I didn't do it. Or, like, you know, they show, like, a tell that helps them, like, oh, okay, that's that's winding them up, so let's probe a bit more. Exactly, yeah. So just to take the doubt away, if anyone's thinking, James most definitely did do it. They found his DNA. They found his DNA with Jim's blood in various places in Jim's flat. They found Jim's blood on James's watch and the money he had along. You know what he gave to his his mum, along with it being on various places on his clothes as blood splatter. So now, did that money come from Jim. Yes. Yes, he'd stolen it from the flat. Yeah. Once he was, once he was charged with murder and theft. So, like you say, the theft being the six thousand pounds, eighty pounds of it was his. 
six thousand pounds was wow. Jim's. It was Jim's life savings, and he kept it for some strange reason in cash in his flat. Once, well, it's it's not strange at all. I think it's the generational thing, isn't it? For uh, yeah, I guess so. I see. Some yeah. folks not trusting banks. So once he'd been charged, once he'd been charged with murder and theft, he was transferred at first to the HMP Magbury. But once a hospital order was obtained, and he would be transferred to the Shannon Clinic. He was found fit enough to stand trial, but on further medical examination, the prosecution accepted a plea of guilty of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Oh, wow. Now, it was accepted by all that he killed Jim, so prosecution and defence, that he killed Jim during a psychotic break, due to excessive alcohol consumption. Now, so he pled guilty to manslaughter and grounds of the demonstrative responsibility, so there's no real trial to go into. But the reason I chose this case, Rachel, is because of the judge's summing up remarks. We always talk about, um, we don't, how does a judge get to where he gets to? Sometimes, don't we? Yeah, and- absolutely. And each case can be, Sorry, I, I just lent it again. Yeah, absolutely. And each case can be like really tricky to wrap our heads around. Like, why did that sentence get so long or so short in comparison to, say, another case that we did the week before? So, yeah. So, yeah. So the sentencing report. I read the sentencing report from the judge, and I found it fascinating, which is why I chose this crime. So, yes, the judge went through all the usual stuff: the crime, the arrest. Well, it was really obvious that the judge really struggled with how to sentence James. And he actually openly admitted the judge said that he had three choices. So even though it was manslaughter, he could still give him a life sentence or he could order a hospital order. So it'd be in a secure facility rather than a prison or he could give him an indeterminate sentence. So he would have to pass a jury or a panel, wouldn't he, to uh, ever be released? So indeterminate sentence, that's what I meant. But yeah, you're right, yeah. So this and, is... and they're the worst sentences, aren't they? Because, um, I mean, for the, the convicts. Yeah, it's not an no... IPP. It's not... An IPP, was... I really hate IPPs. It wasn't an IPP, but yeah, they are, they are the worst because it's harder to get... cut you off there. Sorry, Rachel. Bad that's Andy. Fine. Bad Andy. But yeah, I, you were about to say because there's no set release date, is there? Right? Yeah, and I, I guess if you're in your if you're in your right mind at the time of sentencing, you then can think, you know, with a with a determined sentence that okay, I've got eight years, possibly sixteen, depends on my behaviour, what you know, whatever that sentence looks like, um, to to get out of here. So by the time I am sixty eight, uh, I could be free, but with an indeterminate sentence like Oh, who knows? Yeah, so like you said, it's it's where it's up to the parole board to let him out. So rather than being released after a set amount of time. Now, what people don't realise is a life sentence is actually an indeterminate sentence as well. Mm-hmm. But a life sentence is actually an indeterminate sentence. It's in a way, but it holds more chance of getting out than an indeterminate sentence that isn't a life sentence because it still has a minimum term. So... I mean, it still has a set term, but the judge the judge said that he didn't believe the life sentence was acceptable in this instance due to the mitigating circumstances around James's illness. But he also said that he thought that hospital order, he felt, 
wasn't suitable because James, obviously from the past, couldn't manage himself in society with drugs and alcohol, which made him a danger to the public. So he feared that he gave, if he gave James a hospital order, he would get well enough to get out. But as soon as he was out again, as he had demonstrated so many times in the past, he would just start drinking again. Yeah. So, But he said that he also felt, though, that an indeterminate sentence wasn't great either, as it would stop James getting the help that he needed. So he was really torn. He didn't know, he didn't like any of the sentences that he could give him. So it was obvious that he was torn. So he sought assurances that he, if he gave James a prison sentence, he could still be treated in a secure hospital he was in at the time of his deliberations. So once, and he actually got these assurances, like so good on the judge. So once mm-hmm. he had got, once he had gotten these, he gave him an indeterminate sentence with a minimum term of eight years to begin in the hospital. But should he ever get well, to be transferred back to the prison, that it would all that would be up to the pro board to decide when he would be released after the eight years. But the pro board could only ever do that with the full backing of medical experts, and that the experts' opinions would be the ones to guide the pro board. And even then, he ordered a lifelong license so he could go straight back to prison if he ever broke the prison terms. So basically, yeah. he's he's mixed them all together. He's mixed the lifelong license from the life sentence, the hospital order from the hospital order, and the indeterminate sentence. So he's found a way to put all three together. So James, he's still in... And I just thought that was fascinating because the detail that he went into and he obviously cared about giving the right sentence some people say well the judges don't care this one obviously did yeah absolutely so he's still in prison now with his first chance of parole technically being next year but that doesn't obviously mean that it will be now after the sentence james's sister and mother would come out and say that while he deserved to be locked up for what he did and that they'd even know they'd visited him a few times that they couldn't ever forgive him. They also condemned the local authorities who had ignored both James's own pleas for help, because he had in several times pleaded to be locked up, and his family's pleas to have him put in a secure facility prior to the murder he committed. So his family and James himself were saying, I need to be locked up, I need to go into a hospital, and he was deemed suitable to be monitored in the uh, community. Now, they actually applauded Jim's brother, who had come out in the media after the murder, and he said that he forgave James for what he did. Jim's sister, sisters and niece would come out and give statements both to the judge as victim impact statements, but also to the press afterwards, saying how much they loved Jim and how he was missed by all. So, Rachel, um, Again, like I know some people like to, why, like to know why I pick cases. I picked this one simply for how he was sentenced, how much effort the judge put into this, and how, again, sadly, this is one that could have been prevented. If I think if a patient themselves is saying, and we heard this before with that woman who killed in the high street, do you remember? If yeah. a patient themselves are saying, I need to be locked up, and the family is saying, this person needs to be, we're not locked up, but helped in a secure facility. The family is mm-hmm. saying the same thing. They should be listened to, surely, shouldn't they? 
Yeah, I was just about to reference that case. And I can't imagine to be the to be the accused's family saying you should have listened to my brother and to us when we were crying out for help. Fair enough, the victim's family saying that, you know, why didn't anyone listen? Because they've lost a family member, clearly um, an amazing human, big part of his community and, you know, such a, a lovely, caring, giving guy. But to have the accused's family come out and say that, that really, <clears throat> sorry, that really hits home. Um, the the severity of of his of his case with his schizophrenia. And also, I always find it amazing because I openly admit I don't think I could be as good a person as Jim's brother, who came out and said, "I forgive James." I I you know what I. Makes me might make me a lesser person, but I would carry that hatred for life. Um, I know for what I would. There's no way I could say if someone murdered someone I loved, I could say I forgive this person, even though I'm supposed to say that. Um, I don't think I could unless I had some sort of, um, yeah. I think it takes a special kind of person to have that in them to openly forgive but um i've seen many um families impacted by loss that have forgiven and forgotten i've also seen many stand up and say i will never forgive and forget and i just i don't think there's a right or wrong way to behave i just believe it's how you process these kinds of things and and how you move on yeah. For some people, forgiveness is a, is a process and one of the steps, isn't it? But for others, carrying that hatred is is, you know, obviously not the best for their health, but something that they just can't ever let go of, and and that's to be respected as well. Yeah, yeah I think you summed up perfectly, um, and hopefully, I don't think James should ever be released because it seems like in the past. He just starts drinking again, and that triggers his. Um, even with his medication, it triggers his episode. So, well, you know, I recently watched this um stream on the BBC about the parole process. Don't know whether you've watched it. It's called Parole. Um, and there's like five episodes, and uh, it it's really quite interesting. So each episode they dive into two cases where you know people have been given life or long-term sentences and they are um applying for parole obviously um the clues in the title but they're talking you so the parole board is talking you through a the process that they have to take to determine whether or not they grant the parole but b um they're talking you through the crimes and the patterns of behavior of the individuals that are on um that are up for parole and it's really interesting because right at the end of the program, they'll have either granted the parole or not. And it's re- first of all, it's interesting to watch how the person reacts, um, especially those that haven't been granted the parole, because they put this really nice persona on in their interviews. And then they kind of like, you know, um, get really angry at the results. 
but you know they're being held essentially for their own and others safety that's the only reason why they've not been granted parole but second of all those that have been granted parole they are they give a brief update in the rolling credits most of them come back to prison um because of their behaviors pre-prison have not been addressed they're drinking they're drug taking um you know these halfway houses that they are um needing to stay in post-prison and the check-ins that they have to do with their um parole officer um is is that the term yeah yeah so um they're they're not kept up probation officer yeah probation officer sorry they're not kept up and and then the probation officer like grows concerned about their behavior and it's just so easy for um people without um you know these additional kind of illnesses and and uh, issues to to just fall back into old ways let alone someone that's you know got really intrusive thoughts and schizophrenia so yeah, yeah. I, I I agree with you like it might be best and it's not often I say um that I, I I want someone to spend the rest of their life you know in a facility like that but I agree with you in this case it, it might be best for him and also what it's a whole different topic but since they privatized the probation uh probation service it's just got a lot worse because some people just fall through the cracks and uh, anyway, that's a different one. So shall I, shall I wrap this up then, Atrium? Yeah. So this has been season three, episode 19, called I Just Couldn't Stop Myself. And if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like all of you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. How many times do we need to hear about people being seriously injured and dying at the hands of people who should be receiving help, not left alone in the public? Or people who wanted help, they asked for help, but they got ignored due to budget costs. How many lives is too many? So, thank you everyone. And we shall be back next week with Rachel taking on a case. Thanks guys. Bye. Bye.